What an interesting time we live in. The motor of the world has been stopped. Not by John Galt, but by our state governors guided by the advice of medical experts. By the way, if you're wondering who is John Galt, you will find him in the pages of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Our rights have been infringed on the pretext of protecting us from a virus. We have now experienced Ben Franklin's famous quote, Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. We have been denied such rights as freedom of association and freedom of travel, but most importantly, we have been denied our right of the pursuit of happiness. Never has this abstract right been more tangible than when the right to participate in commerce, whether as a laborer, service provider, consumer, or business owner, was denied to those whose value is arbitrarily deemed non-essential. You see, our ability to earn a living in order to provide for our families is an essential expression of the inalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free. As I said in the intro to this podcast, the effect of the COVID-19 lockdowns is that we have been denied the right to pursue happiness. Our ability to earn a living in order to provide for our families is an essential expression of the inalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. I will have to admit that prior to our current lockdown orders, I often thought of the pursuit of happiness as more of an abstract literary device than a concrete right like life or liberty. Our current situation has shown me the essence of the meaning of the pursuit of happiness, and I will never think of it as abstract again. The thing that seems so obvious to me is that our government officials are completely oblivious to the true value of work. Leo Tolstoy once said, Work, not leisure, is the indispensable condition of happiness for every human being. It appears that this essential truth is lost on our government officials. This lack of understanding of the value of our work is further underscored by the attitude that we can replace the value of our work with some stimulus payments, unemployment checks, and PPP loans. Oh yeah, Throw in some big business subsidies too. Still, none of this comes close to replacing the value of fulfilling our life purpose through our work. It is through work that we experience our sense of purpose by serving one another and in the process provide for our families. This essential pursuit of happiness is what has been taken from us by the response to COVID-19. As a self-governing people, we are perfectly capable of evaluating the information provided by well-intended COVID-19 experts 
and adjusting our activities to best manage the risk to ourselves and our families. We can certainly do this better than the one-size-fits-all, mask-wearing, social distancing, stay-at-home, self-isolation, overreaching lockdowns from our governors. This is not to say that there is not a valid risk from COVID-19. So before we look more closely at the infringement of our rights, it is important to address the pretext for the infringement. That, of course, would be COVID-19. There is significant debate regarding the severity of the threat of the virus, the accuracy of reporting of the statistics, and the effectiveness of social distancing, wearing masks, and the closure of businesses. Some of the questions being asked are, is the infection rate high enough to justify lockdowns? Are we flattening the curve enough to allow the economy to open back up? Should you wear a mask for your protection or the protection of others? All relevant topics for discussion. But when it comes to justification for infringing upon our individual rights, these issues are irrelevant. There is nothing that could rise to the level of justifying the infringement of rights that was taken in the response to COVID-19. In general, the government and medical experts can share their recommendations, but they should only be recommendations. As self-governing individuals, we can each choose our response to the threat of COVID-19 as we see fit based on our specific situation. An exception to what I have just stated is when a state justly exercises what it is known as the police power. For a definition of the police power, let's take a look at what Wikipedia has to say about it. Quote, In United States constitutional law, police power is the capacity of the states to regulate behavior and enforce order within their territory for the betterment of the health, safety, morals, and general welfare of their inhabitants. Police power is defined in each jurisdiction by the legislative body, which determines the public purposes that need to be served by legislation. Under the Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution, the powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people. This implies that the federal government does not possess all possible powers, because most of these are reserved to the state governments and others are reserved to the people. Police power is exercised by the legislative and executive branches of the various states through the enactment and enforcement of laws. States have the power to compel obedience to these laws through whatever measures they see fit, provided these measures do not infringe upon any of the rights protected by the United States Constitution or their own state constitutions, and are not unreasonably arbitrary or oppressive. Methods of enforcement can include legal sanctions, physical means, and other forms of coercion and inducement. Controversies over the exercise of state police power can arise when exercise by state authorities conflicts with individual rights and freedoms. Close quote. I would also suggest an article entitled The Proper Scope of the Police Power by Randy Barnett if you want to take a deep dive into this topic. 
You can find a link in the show notes. With that background on state police power, let's lay out what a just exercise of police power would look like in response to a health emergency. Since the exercise of police power conflicts with individual rights, the courts use a two-step test to determine the validity of such an exercise of police power. Step one is the government must have a compelling public interest in implementing the measure. Step two is the measure must be the least restrictive as possible. So let's assume that COVID-19 presents a compelling interest. The question then is, are the lockdowns the least restrictive method to address COVID-19? The answer is clearly no for these reasons. One, quarantines are for sick people, not healthy ones. Once someone has contracted a disease, it is reasonable to isolate them for a period of time to prevent further spread. A reasonable person would do so without the need for government intervention. Reason two, shutting down commerce is a broad measure with no proven ability to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Reason three, the designation as an essential or non-essential business is completely arbitrary. It is also a further assault on the value of our work to suggest that it could be non-essential. And finally, number four, there is no due process for contesting this designation. If your business is deemed non-essential, to whom do you appeal? For these reasons, the lockdowns are clearly an unjust overreaching exercise of the police power. Before we discuss some of the prescriptions available to us to address these injustices, let's do a quick run through of some of the good and the bad with respect to the lockdowns and our response to COVID-19. First of all, let's find some good. Federalism is alive and well. There was no national lockdown as the police power is reserved for the states. It's encouraging to see this aspect of the law was respected. However, federal funding did play a role in initiating and prolonging the state lockdown orders. What I mean by this is declaring an emergency is often a prerequisite to qualifying for federal funds. And it is certainly the case that governors were incentivized to declare an emergency in order to qualify for federal funds. And obviously, extending the emergency order continues those funds to flow. Let's get back to some good things. There was at least some degree of private sector reliance in addressing the problem, specifically in terms of vaccine development. And that was good to see. There was also some regulatory relief uh, issued by the FDA in order to speed the development of a vaccine. I was also encouraged to see a lot of citizen pushback. Citizens need to redress grievances when government oversteps its bounds like it did. And there was significant pushback on the lockdowns. It was also encouraging, at least in some states, to see state legislatures 
attempt to exercise their power in response to governors overstepping their authority as the state executive. And the same is true in some states of judicial involvement. Well, let's now look at some of the bad that we saw. First of all, the lockdown decisions by the governors. I believe they were arbitrary. They obviously lacked due process. To whom do you appeal if you're not allowed to work? Or if you're a restaurant that is regulated to only operate at 50 or 25% capacity? And in a lot of cases, there was inadequate pushback from the legislative branch in the states. I think also the governors demonstrated a lack of understanding of business profitability. And what I'm talking about is thinking that a business can stay afloat and operate properly at 50% capacity or even 75% capacity. If they had any real world business experience, they would understand that a typical business needs to operate at 85, 90, 95% capacity just to reach profitability. Now, another symptom here are these ridiculous federal spending bills. And I've lost count, three, four of them, um, trillion dollar bills, uh, just unreasonable amounts of spending. All of this would have been unnecessary if you just let people go to work. And of course, a majority of these bills had nothing to do with COVID-19 response. They were just the typical pork barrel spending that we're used to seeing from Congress. And it was particularly offensive with one of the bills. It was, I believe, over a trillion dollar spending bill that the plan was to pass it by a voice vote. And thanks to, to Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky, he forced a recorded vote. It is just unconscionable that a federal representative would think it's okay to spend trillions of dollars and not have to put their name to it in a recorded vote. And finally, another disturbing aspect is the involvement of the federal government in issues of science. Now, I know we had our expert, Dr. Fauci, of the State Science Institute. Okay, I couldn't resist at least one more Atlas Shrugged reference. But what is concerning here is the meddling of the federal government in science. You know, it's it's an old axiom that when you mix religion with politics, you get politics. It's certainly true. Well, the same is true of science. I think what has been demonstrated is that when you mix science with politics, you get politics. And unfortunately, what has happened is science has been politicized throughout this pandemic. So let's talk about some prescriptions. And it's probably no surprise to you that I'm going to offer up the Article 5 Convention of States amendment process as a way to address some of the ills that we've seen throughout this pandemic. There are a number of possible constitutional amendments that could have helped here. An obvious one is a federal balanced budget amendment. It could have put a restraint on some of the ridiculous spending that we've seen. 
We could also see a separation of science and state. I hadn't thought of this before, but we certainly have an amendment that tells us Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free practice thereof. I would be fine with an amendment that says Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of science or restricting the free practice thereof. Just a thought. It would be a great opportunity to get the government out of health care so we can rely on the private sector to do what it does best. I think also a single subject amendment would have been helpful. This is an amendment that most states have that simply states that all bills must be limited to a single subject clearly stated in the title. This could have gone a long way in helping us avoid these pork barrel COVID-19 multi-trillion dollar spending bills that we've had to swallow. I think it would also be nice to have an amendment that says we require a recorded vote in both houses of Congress whenever they're spending money. It'd be nice to see who the spendthrifts are. Probably all of them, to be honest. And then finally, it's encouraging to see the states responding with a number of emergency action laws and automatic triggers for the legislature to get involved once uh, the governor declares an emergency order. So, that's my take on our present COVID-19 crisis and how the Convention of States can be a solution as big as the problem. This is the Free to be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The first thing that you'll want to do at conventionofstates.com is to learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition to let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends.